Our first scripture reading today is from Romans chapter 5. Uh, we've been preaching in the Psalms this summer. We are doing one more today, sort of an end of summer weekend here. Uh, so we often read from the opposite testament. We're preaching in the old, we're reading from the new, or vice versa. But today we're in Romans 5. Rebecca is going to come and read it for us. Rebecca. Romans 5, 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, but more have the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of the righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience and the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came into increase, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are wrapping up our series uh, in the Psalms uh, today. We're not going uh, sequentially through them, but we selected a number from the first book of the Psalms, which is 1 through 41. The great thing about the Psalms is that they kind of articulate the full range of human experience. Uh, Psalm 39, as as you'll see, it's written by one man in one situation, but it's written in such a way that that we can take it, we can kind of appropriate it and learn to pray these things along with, in this case, David. Um, And uh, and all through, we've kind of seen different ones, very praisey, very thankful Psalms, uh, and other ones, much more difficult circumstances, including uh, today, Psalm 39. But before I get into it, uh, Lex is going to come and read it for you. You can follow along in the back middle part of your bulletin, and then I'll be back. Lex. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, that what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreaths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely, Mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. 
And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I have spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is but a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like my father's. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Check, check. There we go. We're going to spend some time reflecting on that text together. Thank you, Lex, for reading it. Okay, tell me if you've had this experience before. Uh, maybe you're sitting in a small group, like a, a, a church small group, or maybe you're out for coffee with a friend, and someone there, whether the friend you know, across the table from you or someone in the small group, has just spilled their guts. Their life is a mess. Maybe it's their kids that are out of control, uh, and they're kind of at loose ends for, for how to help them. Maybe they're going through a difficult breakup. They just kind of cry at a moment's notice. Maybe they've done something wrong. Maybe they've committed a sin, and they feel so ashamed and guilty about it. Or maybe they're just deeply depressed. And, and you've sat with them for, so, for some manner of time, and they've poured out all these feelings, all these thoughts, and all these experiences. And then here's the experience I wonder if you've had. If it was a more Christian-y kind of meeting... Someone suggests, why don't we take some time to pray about it? Great suggestion. We love prayer. But in contrast to the very real, very honest, very raw conversation, why is it that prayer often comes out sounding like one of those, those go-to-sleep podcasts, you know, like, oh, Lord, thank you that you are here. Thank you for your help. Like, I hate to be a critic of anyone's prayers, and I'm probably as guilty as anyone. But the question I have is, well, where's the honesty? Where's all the stuff you were, you were just talking about? Why is all of the difficult things kind of camouflaged under this layer of smooth nothings? We have somehow believed that all the harder things of life, struggling families, out of control feelings, wild thoughts, mental instability, where that we, we've come to believe somehow we have to put that stuff aside so that we can pray. But that's just not what the Psalms are like. It's not how they work. Paul Miller, it's, I think, my favorite book about prayer. It's called The Praying Life. He writes this, and I quote, Your heart could be and often is askew. That's okay. The very things we try to get rid of, our weariness, our distractedness, our messiness, are what gets us in the front door. And Miller argues in his book, don't put your life aside to begin praying. Use your life as the place to begin. It's like a springboard into prayer. And as we conclude our series in the psalm, Psalm 39, this is what we see. The details of why David wrote this psalm, kind of pretty scant. We don't, we don't get a lot of information, but we do see David, this man, this king, coming to God in the midst of some great difficulty. He has having some profound angst. He's not on vacation at an all-inclusive resort. He's kind of deep in the muck of life, and he's crying out to God. So we're going to take this psalm in four parts. We'll first talk about this first part where he's kind of like pent up. He wants to talk, but doesn't know if he should. Then we'll talk about knowing the end. 
And then all these, these requests, a maelstrom of requests, and then finally the unsettling conclusion. Psalm 39 is a psalm of lament. What does that mean? It just means that something is wrong <laughs> in, in the life of the psalmist. He is disoriented. What he expects of life and of God are just not coming to pass. You know when you uh, wake up from like the deep part of your sleep, uh, if you're little kids, you know, this happens all the time, and you're trying to do something functional quickly, and you're in this fog, and things aren't kind of making sense, and is it a dream or am I awake? Uh, in a similar way, David is disoriented by what's going on. Well, what's going on? <laughs> what can we glean from the first three verses about what's happening with David? Well, look there, verse one. David twice says he wants to set a guard on himself. Set a guard on his ways, set a guard on his mouth. When do you need to set a guard? Well, you set a guard when you want to stop someone, you know, like a criminal or something, from doing something. But David is not setting a guard for a prisoner. He's setting a guard on himself, on his own tongue, on his own mouth. He says, I want, I want to muzzle myself. Now, why? Well, if you look at the second line, it's because he's worried about sinning. He's worried if I start speaking, if I start getting all this stuff off my chest, he's going to sin against God. And also in the last line of verse one, he's worried about accidentally encouraging the wicked. He's like, I'm going to say something. It's going to hurt God's reputation. It's going to push someone further away from God. Again, we don't know what the situation is, but David is convinced it's better to keep silent. And in verse two, that's what he's doing. He's like, I'm mute. I'm silent. I'm not talking. I'm holding my peace. But he's like a volcano. Like things are just, like it's building. The pressure is building and building inside. It's, it's going to come out. His distress is getting worse. His heart is getting hot. Sounds like a wor worrisome medical condition or whatever. But yeah, it, it probably just referring to feelings of anger, frustration. He's just burning up inside. He's got to speak. And so what do we learn here about how prayer begins? Particularly in times of lament, times of disorientation. Well, I think what we learn, well, with regards to silence, it is sometimes, underline that sometimes, it is sometimes a good thing to be silent before God. There are times not to speak, times we shouldn't speak, times we shouldn't complain. That, that silence can be a, a sign of submission, trust in God. Ecclesiastes, if you read it, there's all these verses in Ecclesiastes about like not talking too much. He, at one point he says, let your words be few. Then he says, oh, there's a time to speak and a time to be silent and so on. Silence before God, humble acceptance of, of what's happening to us can sometimes be a good thing. And David's got these good reasons for not wanting to talk. Doesn't want to sin, that's good. Doesn't want to disparage God's name before uh, non-Christians, also good. Got these internal, external motivations. But I think what we can say, particularly when it comes to prayer, is that there are times to be silent and times to speak. Humble silence, great, it's not a universal rule. And in fact, if we kind of put the weight of the Psalms, the weight of the Psalms would not really be on silence. They would be more on speaking to God in our distress. Now, sometimes if you've had hard things, you know, you don't have the words. That's okay. Sorrow, anger, something else is happening. You, you shouldn't, you, or you feel like you can't speak or pray. That's fine. There's a place for that. But in this case, David is bursting with things to say. It's like, it's like a beach ball. He's like, kind of like holding it underwater and like these, these, there's these thoughts and these feelings and it's about to like, you know, pop out and come, and come to the surface. So the question for you is, is pretty simple. Do you have things you need to say to God? Do you have stuff on your mind or heart that's bursting? Perhaps respectful silence is good, but you're free to express it. You can begin in prayer simply with where you are at. Sometimes in the morning when I'm trying to read my Bible and pray, my prayer, my prayer often begins with, 
I'm really tired. <laughs> like, like that, this is what is going on. This is the state I'm entering into prayer this morning. I, 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 I'm, I'm tired. I wish I was in bed. Or sometimes when I go to bed or go to my office, I'll, I'll be praying, this day is not going very well. This is, this is, this is hard. That was hard. That's okay. Life and its circumstances, whatever yours are, that's the place prayer begins. <clears throat> Excuse me. Part two, knowing the end. Okay, so we don't know why David's so disoriented. We don't know why he's so bothered, so upset, but he's so upset, he's worried he's going to sin. So we can at least conclude so far, he's having controversial negative thoughts about God. He's in this dark place. And that makes his first set of requests pretty unusual. You would think, what I would ask for, is relief. (laughs) Can you change this? Can I get some help here? That's not what he asks for. If you look carefully, he says, he asks God to make him know how short his life is, how fleeting, how quickly it's going by. And that word know, if you're familiar with Hebrew stuff, I've probably said this before, that word know means more than head knowledge. David's not asking for information from God about what what day he's going to die on. He's like, I want to feel like in my guts the reality of my short life. I want body level knowledge that it's passing quickly. And by my count, he actually asks for it seven different ways. You see that? He says, I want to know my end. I want to know the measure of my days. I want to know how fleeting life is or fleeting he is. That life is but a few hand breaths. More on that in a second. His life is as nothing. It's a mere breath. It's a shadow. Now, hand breadths were the smallest unit of measurement that Israelites knew. It generally referred not to the, the breadth of the hand, but the four fingers across. It was like how they would, you know, measure, measure things. Maybe modern people would be like, show me that my life is a few nanometers or something. It's something smaller, all you scientists can tell me afterwards. There's some, probably something smaller than a nanometer, but a, a very, the smallest measurement that was sort of available to him. And I'd also point out here that these intense feelings are noted by three different exclamation marks in this section. David is not sort of like casually moaning about this. He's like awkwardly, loudly exclaiming this. If you were in the room, it would be awkwardly loud. Perhaps if I had more acting chops, I'd give you a demonstration, but just, you know, use your imagination. But for whatever reason, now the dam that's holding back David's thoughts and feeling, it bursts out and outpours this torrent of desire for God to show him how short and fleeting his life is. And we might add, if you look at verse 6, how inconsequential and meaningless the accumulation of wealth is. Now, what's David really asking for? Commentators are split. We always love that as preachers when the commentators are split. I'll give you the three major theories. You can tell me which one you like best. Uh, The first major theory, perhaps David is expressing his desire to die. Now, he doesn't come out and say that. This is a bit more of an interpretive kind of move here. But the focus on how fleeting life is, and it's a shadow, and it's short, it may indicate, may indicate, his desire for life to pass quickly. It's possible that David is just really depressed, and he kind of wants it all to be over. A second theory is that David wants perspective. He's kind of asking for, uh, I'm trying to step back from my immediate problems and see the whole scope of my life so that I will understand that this, this very hard moment is, is passing. Sometimes our, our present problems seem very big, but it's kind of like, you know, when you hold up your thumb to the moon and if you hold it just right and kind of close one eye, like the, the moon like disappears, the moon's gone. But of course the moon is gigantic, and if you move your thumb a little further away or open your other eye, it's clear the moon is much larger than your thumb, but you've kind of lost perspective for a moment. 
perhaps David's problems, they're too close to his face. He can't kind of see around them. Maybe he's saying, God, would you give me perspective on my life? And the third theory is that perhaps David is just asking God to help him focus on the right things. Maybe if he understands how, how quickly it is passing, how fleeting it is, how meaningless the accumulation of wealth is, perhaps then he can deal with the more important, the, the lasting images, lasting issues of life. It's like a person who has like a, a brush with death. You know, they're in a car accident and kind of walk away, and they're like, I'm going to spend less time at work and more time with my kids or whatever. Uh, maybe David wants to reorient his priorities. So these are the three theories, depression, perspective, priorities. It's hard to know. We aren't actually sure. And I don't think you need to be sure. It's kind of a strange request. It's not what we would expect from what we saw in the first couple of verses. But here's how I think we can apply it. It's okay to just ask God for what is on your heart. When life gets discouraging, when life gets disorienting, you can just sort of dump your inner life on the table and ask God for help. If you've got profound angst there, okay, go to God with that. If you have depressing thoughts, even to the point of desiring death, you can, you can go to God with that. If you need perspective, okay, like that's whatever you need. Don't worry so much about whether it's a good thing to need. Just go ahead and ask. We might summarize much of the biblical teaching on prayer, particularly the parts where Jesus teaches on it, uh, with one word, Ask. You can just ask. God's a good father. He's not going to give you a scorpion when you ask for bread. He's not going to give you something that's going to harm you. He'll kind of sort through your request. He'll deal with them wisely. And sort of on this question of maybe wanting to die, if you, if you know the story, uh, I'll summarize it quickly, but when Elijah asks God to let him die, he's gone through this great victory, but he's profoundly depressed afterwards, and, and Elijah tells God, just like, just kill me now. Make it, let it be over. Now what does God do? God feeds him, God gives him water, and he gives him two really long, good sleeps. So, so Elijah takes his request, which we would say, don't ask for that. And he, and, but God hears it, God answers him wisely, not by giving Elijah what he wants, but by giving him what he needed. Why does David want so badly to know his life's end, the measure of his days? I, I, don't, I don't know. But God does, and then God did with that request what was right. Okay, let's do part three. A maelstrom of requests. Maelstrom, I wanted to use that word. It's another word for like a whirlpool in a river or like an ocean. Um, so it's just like this kind of like all these things flying around. Uh, verse 711 we're looking at here. There's no unifying theme. That's why I call it a maelstrom. They're just kind of erupting out of David kind of left and right. No apparent order. Verse 7 asks a question, what am I waiting for? It's hard to tell at first, at first glance if this is a question of defiance. Maybe David is sort of being, being defiant. God isn't hearing him, isn't answering him. That's possible. But I think it's more likely a question of trust. Because if you look right after, he goes on to confess that his hope is in God. And then sort of a small clue to his situation. David asks to be delivered from all his transgressions. Now the Psalms, the Bible, they use lots of different words for sin, including this word transgressions. To transgress uh, means to, to break a law, to break a rule. Um, iniquity, there's other ones that mean other things like bending or distorting good things, different nuance. But what David is confessing, what he's asking to be delivered from is his rule breaking, his failures to keep God's law. And I call this a clue because up until now, we, we don't know if David's sort of um, angst and problems are self-caused, caused by enemies, caused by God, caused by a natural disaster or whatever. And we now know, at least in part, 
It's, it's in part due to some sin. And David wants to be delivered from it. Even though it's his own fault, he broke a rule, he broke a law, he, he wants to be free from it. And in the, if you look in the second part of verse 8, he doesn't want some fool to come along and scorn him for what he's done. This may indicate that uh, his failure was publicly known. His rule breaking was publicly known. Or perhaps David is worried, it's going to become known and I don't want them, you know, people to scorn me for it. David wants deliverance from his sin, but he also wants uh, deliverance from like the social consequences of his sin. In verses 10 through 11, we get a few more specifics. David tells us the main source of his angst is the discipline of God. He feels God's stroke lying across his life. He feels hostility arising from God. He feels disciplined and rebuked by God. And then David compares God to a moth who consumes, who eats up what is most dear to a person. Now, these are not nice church words, right? These are pretty harsh, pretty blunt. Some significant angst arising from David, and it's aimed kind of squarely in the direction of God. When we come across statements like these, best thing to do, one of the most helpful things to do, is try to find another passage that talks about God's discipline to kind of compare and contrast, help us sort through this. And the scriptures are clear. God does discipline his people. And Hebrews 12 is one of the best places that explains this. It says that when God treats us like his sons, like his children, he disciplines us. And that includes things like instruction, training, correction. Like a good parent, God lets his children know when they've gotten off track. He doesn't do it for his good. Hebrews 12 verse 10 says we are disciplined for our good. And then right after Hebrews 12 verse 11 says, you know what all all you children know, discipline can can be painful. Discipline sometimes it hurts, it stings, not always physically, uh, emotionally or whatever. But if you put the pieces together of Hebrews 12, God disciplines in response to sin. It's administered to us for our good. And discipline feels painful. And so we kind of take that framework and take it back to Psalm 39. It seems like what David is articulating is the third part, that discipline feels painful. It's felt like hostility. It's felt like a consuming moth. Now, to be clear, God is not hostile to David, but he's disciplining him, as far as we can tell, at least. David's already confessed there's been transgressions, and David wants the discipline to stop. Again, fine thing to ask for. Just ask. There's nothing unspiritual, nothing immature about asking the discipline to stop, to tell God, to pray to God and say, I've learned my lesson, I've turned from my sin. But I think the larger lesson here that we must not miss is that some of life's pain, some of life's pain is the discipline of God meant to turn you to repentance. Now we have to be really careful. Do we have the ability to know when something is discipline or when something is simply suffering? Uh, No, no we don't particularly when it comes to other people. Uh, if you come to me after church and you tell me about you know, your chronic pain or you're this or you're that, I have no way of knowing if it has spiritual roots. I don't think we have the right to look at a natural disaster and conclude, yep, that was the discipline of God. Uh, but, but I will say this. Most of us never bother to consider if something might be the discipline of God. We've kind of gone the other way. It doesn't cross our minds. We live in a a pretty medicalized and scientific society where every, um, you know, physical and emotional ailment and and, um, geological happening has has explanations. And we're like, look, this is why it happened. Here is the hormone that went wrong. Fine. But we often stop there. Simply because something has a medical explanation does not mean it's merely medical. 
Why can't God work through our bodies as surely as he works through anything else? I think this psalm would invite us to ask the question, mostly of ourselves, is what is going on in my life the discipline of God intended to return me to him? Is God taking away something I hold dear that I might feel the weight and the seriousness of my sin? Now, like David, we're free to lament the pain, to cry out our distress, to ask God, hey, take this away from me, but let's just not ignore it. Let's not, let's not write it off as only being unspiritual. And also, let's be careful about how we speak to each other. If someone is in distress, if someone is suffering, and they are articulating how much it hurts, you don't have to shut that down. Maybe sometimes someone will say to you, I, I, I feel like God doesn't care, about, doesn't care about me. You don't have to respond and say, oh, don't talk like that. Of course he cares about you. You can just simply acknowledge, huh, that, that's, that's how it feels. That's what's going on in their life. They are saying it hurts. This is what's happening. They are asking God for help in many ways. A prayer like that is simply following in the footsteps of David. So in summary here, this third part, we're looking to our pain. We're looking to our discipline to find clues about what God may be up to. <clears throat> Let's move to part four, though. <clears throat> Excuse me. An unsettling conclusion. Look at verse 12. David asked God to hear him, to give ear to him, and to not hold his peace at David's tears. So this last sentence is a plea for God to act. God, David saying, please don't summary. It's a reiteration of everything David has asked for. <clears throat> uh, it, it's unsettling. I call it unsettling because there is no verse 13. There's no, there's no answer provided to David. There's no description that, well, now God is showing up in some dramatic way. David is not comforted by the Spirit of God. There's no statement of confidence. There's no moment of peace. There's no calm that follows the storm. The psalm ends, and there is simply the storm. If it were a movie scene, and David was weeping and praying, you know, on his bathroom floor in some apartment or whatever, at, at the end of the scene, crying out to God, the, the camera doesn't resolve. It just fades to black. He's just still on the floor. There's no resolution here. There's no response. Hence the unsettling conclusion. Is this how we want it to end? What are we supposed to do with this? I'll give you two things we can do with it. First, this psalm is a demonstration of how life sometimes works. We don't operate in neat and tidy world that always had good, good endings. We often don't get answers to prayer. We aren't always comforted. The light doesn't always return. The season of depression does not always lift. That is the true about our world. That does not mean that God does not care. He has not heard. It simply means he has not chosen to answer in the way you want. I, I will tell you, and many of you can testify to it, you will encounter in the Christian life, you will encounter seasons of silence from God. Seasons of distance. That is not all there is to God, of course, but that is sometimes how we encounter him. That's the first thing. The second thing is I think we ought to understand and remember, the psalm does not stand alone. O. Palmer Robinson, or Robertson has written a book called The Flow of the Psalms, and one of his main points in that book is that the psalms fit together very purposefully. They're not in chronological order. They weren't written like earliest to latest or whatever. Uh, the psalms are arranged thematically. So often, though, like in sermons like this, we're like, we're just preaching on Psalm 39. Um, sometimes when we get stuck, sometimes when we're not sure exactly what to do, we can look at the surrounding psalms to get a better context. 
Psalm 39, if you went back there and read it, you're like, well, that doesn't help because it has all the same issues to Psalm 30, or Psalm 38 has all the same issues as Psalm 39. <laughs> David feels forsaken and cast off by God. It's not going very well. But if you look at Psalm 40, popularized by you too, uh, it's this psalm of, of help and deliverance, a psalm where God comes through in dramatic ways. David is lifted out of a bog. He's placed on, on this rock. He sings this new song. It's, it's lovely. There are seasons of dramatic help. There are times when, when God really hears and he really delivers. That does not mean that you prayed better or prayed correctly. It's rather that God chose to be gracious this time. Sometimes we get resolution, but it's on God's timing and not our own. But I would also encourage us <clears throat> to remember this psalm and to lift our eyes a bit higher, a bit beyond the, the horizon of this psalm. Because think about it this way. What was happening to David and what was he asking for? He was suffering from both his sin and the discipline of God, maybe other circumstantial sufferings as well. He wanted relief. He wants God to hear. God chose not to answer. And as I've been saying, we don't like the silence that follows. We don't like it when God doesn't answer. We don't like when we are left kind of alone. But just consider this, and we'll conclude with this. Thousands of years later, after the psalm was written, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will offer a similar prayer. He sees he is about to suffer for transgressions, not his own, but of humanity. He sees the discipline of God is ready to fall on him, and he asks, and it's recorded, in great drops of sweat and blood, he prays and he asks, is there going to be, can there be a different way? And once again, silence from God. No answer is recorded from the heavens. And the silence of God, the no that Jesus gets from the Father, leads to the salvation, forgiveness, deliverance from the justice of God for any of us who would accept it. So beyond the horizon of the psalm, even as we, we chafe at the silence of God in the midst of our pain, we would do well to remember that the silence of God once led to the salvation of humanity, the cure for our pain, the salve for our sin. When Jesus offered up prayers and got silence, when God's stroke fell heavily on him, we were saved. And be assured, this same Jesus now stands at the right hand of the Father, interceding, praying for, speaking to the Father on behalf of all of us who cry out in our pain. So go ahead and ask, and may he have mercy on us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Psalms like Psalm 39, which articulate parts of our life and our experience that we don't like, that we'd rather not face, we'd rather not have, and yet, in some due times, in some seasons, we do get. Please help us. Please help us to pray, help us to ask. Thank you for Christ and what he has done and that his, his prayers going unanswered, getting no's, led to our salvation. Help us to look to him in our pain and our distress. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.